Take your Bibles tonight, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We've been here for quite some time and going through this greatest sermon ever preached, and we're going to continue on with the next section. We're getting near the end of Matthew chapter 5. We've only got actually one passage left um, after tonight, and we'll be moving into this chapter. This, uh, this message is, is uh, this sermon that Jesus preached is three chapters long, and so we've still got a, a good bit left to go on it. Uh, I would say we're about halfway through or so, um, but... One of the things that we've talked about over and over and over is that God is after your what? Your heart. God is after your heart. And just like with all the other Mosaic commands that were so, uh, so grievously misinterpreted and misapplied by the Pharisees, uh, this is the same. They've, they just completely took it out of context, misapplied it, um, misinterpreted it. And of course, then Jesus um, is referencing in verse number 38... Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, that is found in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. Uh, that was part of their Jewish law. Just like, and, and I'm not going to beat a dead horse here, but you go back and look at the other passages that Jesus said about all those other things. Ye have heard it said before that, and then he would quote it. But I say unto you, and that's what Jesus is talking about. And that's exactly what he does in this passage here tonight. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. See, what Jesus is doing, not just with this uh, passage, but with all of the passages, is, is seeking to bring God's people back to the spirit of the laws. Uh, the Pharisees wanted to follow the letter of the law, and Jesus was trying to tell them that it's not the letter of the law that's so important, it's just the dead letter, but it's the spirit, the living spirit behind it. So what was the original intent of this portion of the Mosaic law? Well, simply put, what Jesus is trying to get across here is that we ought to control the angry desire for revenge that arises out of an injury done to us or arises out of something that someone does to us. And Jesus uses examples. We're going to look at these a little bit later on tonight. But from, from our very earliest age, we have that desire for revenge. Uh, it's, just, it's just built into us. You know, uh, we're going to teach that person that did something to us a lesson that they'll never forget right? Uh, think about going back to the, you know, the toddlers in the nursery. Because you hit me with a truck, I'm going to whack you with a doll, you know? Uh, it's just the way it is. It, I mean, going back from the time when we're, before we're even, uh, we don't even understand why we're doing it that way. But, you know, as we mature, uh, we start to rationalize that, uh, that lust for revenge. Well, I'm going to teach them a lesson so they won't do that to me again, right? We start to rationalize these getting back at somebody, and, and what we're doing in the process is that we're reacting in the flesh. And what happens when we react in the flesh is that we often go a lot further in our revenge than what justice actually calls for. Uh, go back into the nursery. Uh, you hit me with a truck and it hurt. I started to cry. And so now, you know what? I'm going to slug you as hard as I can with everything that I can. All right? And um, for good measure, I'm going to push you down on top of it. Right? I might be hitting a nerve up here, I think. Huh? Yeah, but uh, that's an emotional situation, you know. Not only am I going to hit you as hard as I can, I'm going to push you down on top of it. 
right? That goes farther than what justice is actually demanding. Uh, and what, what the, even the point of what Jesus is talking about here, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Uh, but it's an emotional situation. And as adults, we full well know that an excess of emotion does not necessarily lend itself to reason. And uh, that's not only a childish nature, it's human nature. And so because of that, Moses wrote into his law this, this restraint on humanity's desire for revenge. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Um, that justice is only to deliver a punishment that fits the crime, basically. And, and we have that written into our national constitution and everything else. The punishment ought to fit the crime, right? You, uh, you steal a candy bar off of, somebody's, uh, off of somebody's desk, they don't give you the electric chair, right? Uh, but then on the other hand, what does the Bible say? You kill somebody, you ought to get your life taken as well. So the, the punishment fits the crime, but, but just enough to be an appropriate check on further attacks. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, justice is not emotional. You think about a judge on a bench, and I know most of you have probably not sat through a court session, but the judge, and you, you might have seen it on, on TV or something like that during a, <clears throat> some kind of famous trial or something like that when it's all over the news, the judge doesn't get emotional on the bench. You know, even during the sentencing, a lot of times when he is really giving it to this guy, they don't get emotional for the most part. I'm sure there are some that do. But their job is to be non-emotional in the justice, right? Uh, their, their job is to not get, and, and it's, it's a very difficult one, but their job is to not get involved emotionally in that case so that it does not affect their decision one way or another, right? Justice is not reactive. It's not lashing back at somebody. Justice is not excessive. It goes as far as, as is needed, but it doesn't overstep its bound. It's simply designed to equal the scales, right? You put a pound on this side, we ought to put a pound on this side to equal, this, to equal that justice. You ever seen the, the symbol of justice in America? What is it? It's a woman with a blindfold on, and what else? She's holding scales in her hand, right? And that's exactly what justice is supposed to be, something that's just meted out to fit exactly with what has been done. Justice only takes a tooth when a tooth has been lost. Um, but the object of this law was not necessarily uh, to demand that people require an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but to allow them to do so. They were not required. It says an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and all that stuff. But if, if somebody knocked your tooth out, you weren't required to knock their tooth out. You could. Somebody gouged your eye out in some way. You weren't required to take their eye out. You could, but you weren't required to do it. And, you know, I mean, if, if, if I lose two teeth, I can demand two teeth in return, but I don't have to demand any. Um, I can always call for less than what is just. And the whole idea uh, or the heart of this law was restraint. And this spirit of the law was an encouragement to men not only to refrain from going too far, but also to hold back. And that's the Pharisees, their custom, um, their custom was to, you know, completely ignore the spirit and greatly emphasize the letter of the law. It says an eye for an eye. So you took somebody's eye out, even if it was an accident, your eye's going to get taken out. You knock somebody's tooth out, you're getting your tooth taken out. To them, it was something that was to be insisted upon. One of the great examples of this kind of uh, thinking is William Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, uh, a Jewish money lender named Shylock. Um, had decided, he, he was approached for a loan, and because he, he, had, he had some previous animosity that existed between him and this guy that was uh, uh, asking him for a loan, he demanded, he said that he would give this guy a loan, but he demanded that if the guy defaulted on the loan, that he would require a pound of flesh. 
And so the guy agreed to that. He made the loan, and it wasn't long before this, the guy that he made the loan to defaulted on that loan. And so Shylock took this man to court, and he said, I told him going into it that I was going to demand a pound of flesh if he defaulted on this loan. He defaulted on this loan. Uh, and so the court came to a decision, and they agreed that Shylock had a right to a pound of the man's flesh, but he couldn't shed any of that man's blood in the process. Now, obviously, that kind of tied his hands uh, a little bit. Uh, Shylock was hindered from taking a pound of that man's flesh. And, and I suppose the illustration in relation to the Pharisees in this command in the Torah is <clears throat> not perfect, but it does shed a real light on how they thought because what the Pharisees would have done, you know, they would have been pleased with that decision to remove no more than a pound of flesh, uh, but they would have figured out how to remove a pound of flesh without shedding any blood. They would have done that. That's the way that they were in, in all of these things. And so uh, in their mind, the contract demanded that, so we're going to figure out a way to extract a pound of flesh without losing any blood. Uh, and that's exactly what Jesus you know, is trying to get across and trying to counteract in this passage. Because here we are face-to-face -face with a portion of the sermon that's greatly misunderstood and greatly misapplied. Uh, you can look at this passage, and, and a lot of well-meaning people, I think, I mean, I don't think they're doing it on purpose necessarily, but they, appoint, they point to the words that Jesus Christ gives us here, and they say that Jesus was advocating pacifism. You ought not to defend yourself. You know, Jesus is teaching that the use of force is wrong. If somebody hits you, you ought to turn the other cheek. Don't, don't hit back, right? If somebody does something to you, you don't do anything back. But to take that position, uh, you've got to ignore some very vital biblical principles first. And so what I want to do tonight, we're going to examine what Jesus was trying to get across in this passage. And the first thing, the, the first way that we can do that is to examine some principles of biblical interpretation. How do you interpret the passages in the Bible? Because, again, and we talked about this before, if you took just that passage, you could say that Jesus was demanding that you don't do anything. No use of force, right? Somebody breaks into your house at night and they start stealing stuff. You can't do anything to stop them. You let them go. You let them steal everything they want. In fact, when they're done stealing everything, then you give them the things that they haven't stolen, right? Don't defend yourself. Don't raise a gun to try to get them to leave. Don't shoot them if they raise a gun to shoot you. You just be a pacifist and let them do anything they want to. You could get that out of this passage if this was the only thing that you're looking at. But you're forgetting one thing is the rule of context. Jesus is not teaching a national philosophy against military or against police action and so on. What he's doing is he's directing um, the things that he's saying here toward personal individual responsibility before God. So there's the rule of context. The second thing is the rule of aim. His aim, we've talked about this a lot, was not to destroy the law. And the law clearly states that a man is allowed to insist on an eye for an eye. Pacifism would destroy the law, right? If the law says an eye for an eye, then that means you had the ability to take an eye for an eye. That eliminates pacifism right there. But that's not what Jesus was trying to get across. His aim was to address the underlying reason why the law was written uh, and how a heart that follows God would react uh, not by emotional vengeance on somebody who does something to you. Jesus was not trying to stop societies from defending themselves. He was, stop, he was trying to stop people from insisting uh, that another person be hurt, even though it was legal. Uh, so you have the rule of aim, and then you have the rule of comparison. 
Turn to Romans chapter 13. Here's a very, very important key to everything that we see in the Bible. And this kind of goes right along with, the, with the, um, the rule of context. You have to take it in context. What is Jesus talking about in all of the passage before you just take that one verse or two or three verses and interpret something else? What is he talking about? That's the context, but then you also have the rule of comparison. Truth does not stand in isolation. In other words, it stands in, in blocks, building blocks that make up the whole counsel of God. So one brick might be just a little bit discolored than all of the rest of them, but still it fits in this big mosaic of the way that God is designing everything to fit with what he wants us to know and what he wants us to do. Truth doesn't stand in isolation. For me to say that a particular block means something that obviously contradicts what another block of Scripture is talking about uh, and plainly teaching means that I'm missing something crucial in the overall picture. Um, in, to say that in plain English, I have to interpret this passage in light of what other passages say in the Bible. Um, to try to say that Jesus is advancing pacifism in this passage is to violate a great many other scriptural arguments. And Romans chapter 13 is a, is a very big part of that. Verse 4, for he is a minister of God. This is talking about governments. He is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Take that in a military stance, right? When, uh, when a nation is trying to inflict some kind of uh, rule over our nation or they attack our nation, Jesus is saying... Their job is there to be a defender of everything that's good. And if you're going to do something that's bad, you better be afraid because that means they're going to come after you with the sword. That's not pacifism, right? Take it when it comes to a police action, right? Their job is to protect those people who are law-abiding citizens. Somebody comes along and they go to murder somebody else or they're, they're attempting to take, I mean, look at all these, you know, uh, the things that have happened, these mass murders that have taken place over the last few days. Does the police not have a right to pull out a gun and shoot that man? Because, oh, pacifism, we can't, we can't fight back. Absolutely not. That passage makes it very clear. He's a minister to God, of the, of minister, he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. He beareth not the sword in vain. He's the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. That's about as clear as it can be. That we have every right to defend ourselves, that we have every right to fight back when we're attacked, that we have every right to do something to those who are causing evil. Whether that's a nation that's doing it against our nation, whether that's an individual doing that against another individual, or whether it's somebody coming against us. We do have the right to do that. He makes it very clear. 1 Peter chapter 2, go, turn there real quick. 1 Peter chapter 2. And, and by Romans chapter 13, it's obvious, also by this passage, it's, it's pretty obvious that national, political, governmental, uh, when you look at it in scope, um, it's just as obviously personal in scope about how I react when I perceive that I've been injured. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, submit yourselves therefore to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors or unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. For the praise of them that do well. By the way, that's a great, and I'm not going to get into this at all tonight, but that's a great, uh, uh, a great model for what the government ought to be doing. The government's job is not to overstep all the bounds in our lives and tell us what we can and cannot do. The government's job is to praise good and to punish evil. That's all we're given, right? 
there's, their job is not to do so many of the things that the government has overreached into our society and done today. We're not going to get into that tonight, but that's, that's a very clear passage with that, along with Romans chapter 13. But what we're talking about here is the fact that if you're trying to say that, oh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 is preaching that you cannot defend yourself, you can't fight back. That's taking that in isolation, and truth does not stand in isolation. You have to take all the rest of the passages, look at it all in context, look at it all like we're talking about in comparison to other passages to come to the conclusion. So this brings me to what the main point is and, and what Christ was actually after. Restraint. Restraint. Not pacifism is Christ's point here. If we're to be good Christians, we have to be dead to ourselves. We have to be dead to our own desires. We have to be dead to our own flesh, to our own wishes, to any, any sense of our own honor or glory. Turn to Romans chapter 6. In other words, we're to live in the Spirit. We are to live in the Spirit. And if we live in the Spirit, it will change everything about the way that we react when something is done to us. We have the right? Absolutely. We have every right to do it. But do we need to? That's the key. Restraint. Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Amen. We are to bear in our body a sense of being dead in Jesus Christ. Our old fleshly nature, when we become Christians, is crucified with Christ. Doesn't it say that? I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. In other words, I'm alive, but my flesh should be crucified. I die daily, Paul says. That's what our flesh ought to be doing. Dead things don't react when they're poked, right? Uh, uh, Joe Boy, he's an evangelist. I don't know if he's still alive or not, but he used to say, be a pincushion for Jesus. That's where we ought to be. Lester Roloff, somebody said, and I think I've used this illustration before, but somebody said something to Lester Roloff that, after he said it, he realized that, that it offended Lester Roloff. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it that way. I didn't. Lester Roloff said, you can't offend something that's dead. And that's exactly what he was talking about. He was dead to himself. You cannot offend somebody who is dead to themselves. And the same thing is true when it comes to all of these things that we're talking about. If I'm dead to self, then I'm living a crucified life. Doctrinally, that's all well and good. But how do I live that out in my life personally? Uh, let me give you a couple constructive examples from this passage in Matthew chapter 6, and then it will be done. So turn back over to Matthew chapter 6. The first thing is this. I don't defend myself when I'm attacked. Now, again, we just talked about the fact that, that uh, somebody has every right to shoot back when you're shot at. Uh, you have every right to defend your property. You have every right to defend your life. Um, we're talking more emotionally than physically here. Um, but Matthew chapter 5 and verse 39, But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Seven times in Psalms, David re uh, references God as my defense. He says that over and over, seven times. And as a man, David had conquered giants uh, in the armies of his day. He was, he was not uh, uh, you know, somebody cowering behind uh, his older brother, and hollering, don't hold me back, man. You know, David was not one of those types of people. He was one of those, he was one of those go-getters. He was not afraid. Uh, but over and over and over, David was attacked in a lot of different ways. Uh, you can see what, what happened when Saul was chasing him. You can see what happened when he was being chased by the enemies and everything else. And over and over and over, instead of fighting back, I mean, look, how many chances did David have to kill Saul? 
his problem would have went away that fast, right? It would have been over. His life would no longer have been in danger. He would not have been a fugitive hiding out in caves and eating where he could find food. He, it wouldn't have happened, right? His problems would have been done, but he didn't do that. Over and over and over, he referenced God as his defense, and he begged God to go uh, fight on his behalf. Uh, that position goes against our flesh. That's, that's common with most of this Sermon on the Mount. It goes against everything that we want to do in our flesh. Uh, but granted, when we're attacked, you know, more often verbally than physically, our impulse is to strike back. In fact, turn over to Romans chapter 12. But David, this man after God's own heart, did not strike back. But, I, but you know, I'm just defending myself. They started, I'm only, going, I'm only giving them what they deserve. Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. But rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Well, you just want me to trample on and be abused then, huh? No, not, not exactly. I want you to trust God to take care of you instead of trusting yourself to take care of you. Your own fleshly desires for revenge. That's the difficult part because relying on God to defend us when we're attacked requires faith. And again, I, I'm referencing that more when we're attacked for our faith, when we're attacked for being a Christian, when we're attacked for, you know, other things. I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, if somebody gets you on the ground and starts pounding, you just lay there and don't move so they can finish beating you up. Uh, I'm obviously talking about this more from a faith standpoint. I'm not saying, you know, don't fight back, but uh, often, e even when we do yield to, to Jesus Christ, we're likely to come back a few hours later and try to take back what we... Uh, you know, what we may be painfully placed in his hands in the first place. Uh, that's human nature. I need his help not only to defend me, but also to maintain my willingness to let him defend me. Uh, and, and so here we are again, right back at faith and grace. Every, this sermon requires so much faith, so much grace, that it, it's, it's a good thing that his supply of those things is endless, you know. Um, and, and again, not, not defending myself when I'm attacked, has a lot of other advantages, too. Uh, it, prevents, uh, it brings us to rely on God to defend us. We talked about that one. Uh, it prevents us from overreacting to things that, that we might only be perceiving are slights against us or are attacks against us. Not only that, but the Bible talks about this. It heaps coals of fire on the enemy's head, right? You heard that passage in Proverbs, right? In, when we don't defend ourselves, when we let God go to bat for us, the, people are expecting us to respond in anger, right? Uh, boy, I, it's, it, it actually is very satisfying for that sometimes for that to heap coals of fire on somebody else's head, you know? They, they say stuff to you on purpose to get you riled up, and you don't get riled up about it. You don't defend yourself. You don't fight back, and then they get mad because you didn't fight back, and then they're more angry than they were when they started, right? That's what the Bible is talking about, about heaping coals of fire on their head. Uh, you know, so you might accidentally cut somebody off in traffic or something like that, and they come flying back up there and, you know, trying to get, you know, cut you off and whatever. They want you to get mad, right? And when you don't, that makes them mad sometimes even more, right? Uh, they want you to join in. They want you to do all this kind of stuff. That's what the Bible talks about, about heaping coals of fire on somebody's head. But then also, it removes us from the equation and it puts God at front and center. And that's where he belongs anyway. And we don't belong in the front and center of our life. God does anyway. And so uh, when we're attacked, I don't defend myself. The second thing is this. I don't sue other people. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 40. 
And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. We're talking about some really hard things tonight. You know, the first instinct when somebody wants to sue you is, you know, to fight back with everything you got. And in fact, you know what? I'm going to counter sue you and I'm going to take everything you have, right? That's, that's the culture that we live in today. I mean, America is such a, uh, such a sue-happy culture. I remember one of the first ones, and you might remember this too, one of the first big lawsuits that came out. Remember what it was? Yeah, the woman got the coffee from McDonald's, spilled it all over herself, and sued McDonald's because the coffee was too hot and it didn't say that on the cup. Remember that? She got millions of dollars, and that was kind of the first big, I mean, this was probably, when was that, the mid-90s now, I guess? I don't remember exactly when that was, but that was kind of the first big lawsuit in the United States where somebody won millions of dollars, and then what happened? Everybody started seeing dollar signs everywhere, you know? I'm going to trip over the curb at Burger King and go sue them, you know? I'm going to hit my head on the wall and sue them for not putting, you know, bricks are hard. You know? I mean, it's, it, it is really literally that crazy anymore. And, and the sad thing is that a lot of these judges see it their way, and they give them millions of dollars, right? Um, you'd, you'd, be a, you'd be astounded at how much effort we have to put into just in this little church preventing legal problems from happening. We Thankfully, we have not had anybody try to sue us or anything like that, but it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. But the amount of insurance that we have to have and the amount of uh, different types of insurance that we have to have to make sure that if we are sued for anything, we're covered underneath of all of those umbrella policies and all of that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I, I'm not so much concerned about this church. I'm concerned uh, about me and about you. We can't stop a society that's gone crazy. They're going to keep suing. They're going to keep doing all those things. But, but we can decide that we're not going to be found in court over every tiny little thing that happens to us. There's been things that have happened that I could have sued somebody for and probably won a bunch of money. Uh, but, but it's not a Christian thing to do. Do you think that we have an opportunity to win somebody to Jesus Christ when they're standing across from us in court and we're suing them for millions? Doubt it, Right? Um, and look, there, there might not be much of a chance that we have to win them if we're not standing across from them in court. And, you know, they know that we didn't sue us for this or that. But we have a much better chance of winning them for Christ if we don't sue them. Because I can guarantee you if that guy finds out, oh, that was a Christian that sued me for all those millions of dollars, he'll never give anybody the opportunity to give the gospel to him ever again. And we lose all of that, we lose all of that chance. I heard a story about a pastor of a pretty good-sized church in Oregon. And... They were, they were on, a, on a long trip on a church bus, and they somehow they were involved in an accident, and um, it, it, resolved, it, it resulted in somebody being injured. I think a couple of the people on the bus were, were injured in a, in a very small way, but whoever, whoever they hit, um, the, they got, the accident was pretty serious enough that the guy ended up in the hospital and everything else. Well, this guy sued the church. And um, he came to the pastor after the settlement, and he told the pastor that he didn't think the settlement was enough. And I don't know exactly how much he got, but he wasn't satisfied, and, and, and the law was satisfied, but he was not. And so the pastor sat down with this man, and, and uh, you know, I, mean, I don't know, think about what, what would you do in that situation? You just got a huge settlement, and you don't think it was enough. And the guy came in here and told me, I don't think that settlement was enough. I know what I would do. I would tell him, well, well, go sue us again then. And then, you, know, you know it would never happen. The law, the law is satisfied, then that's all the money you're getting. Um, but he had already gotten his settlement, and, and their church, our churches, don't, don't exist you know, to 
uh, to allow greedy people to soak money out of us. Go somewhere else and, you know, sue them. That's probably, that's what most of us would say. That's probably what I would say. Uh, but this pastor didn't do that. He took a different course. He asked the man how much he thought it would take to satisfy his, uh, his settlement. And uh, the man named a, a pretty, high, uh, pretty high amount of money, six figures. And uh, so that pastor, and he trusted God to take care of them, he led the church to, uh, to remortgage their church building to give this man the amount of money that he was asking for. And, you know, I mean, to me, uh, I think that might have been a foolish decision. You know, <laughs> what now? Here you are happily whistling down the road one day, and the next day you're mortgaging your church, and now you're in debt that's probably going to keep you in debt for years and years and years over this settlement. Um, you know, you, 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 you followed God right off the edge of a cliff into debt in order to satisfy an unsaved man. That's exactly what this pastor did, and, and the church was behind him in that. Um, you know, maybe we're right that it was unwise or that it was, you know, uh, not a good use of the church's money or God's money for that matter. But this, this pastor, just with, with childlike simplicity, believed that that's what God wanted them to do, and so they did it. And honestly, the outcome is, is amazing. The lawyer that the church hired to handle, it was a pretty, pretty complicated, uh, complex problem that they were dealing with in the way that everything had to be handled. But um, the transaction um, and the way that everything played out, the lawyer that handled that transaction was so moved by what this church did that he cut a check to the church for the amount of their mortgage that they were now out because of this lawsuit. And he ended up getting saved, became a Christian there in the church. You know, uh, they, they let that injured man have their cloak also. And God blessed it. You know, God honored them uh, in, a, in a sweet and wonderful way. That's a tough thing to do. But that's exactly what this passage is talking about. There's no other way around it. If any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. You know, somebody sues you and takes your coat. Man, that's my coat. You just took it from me. Right. I'll give him your cloak, too. That's a hard thing to do. But that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Don't, don't render evil for evil. And then the last thing, and this one is, uh, again, this one is one that's pretty difficult as well. Verse 41. Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Roman soldiers had a legal right to insist that uh, that the Jews carry their baggage, their luggage, for a mile. They had that right. The Romans were the rulers of the day. The Jews were under their thumb. If they came up to a Jew who was walking on the road that they were walking on, they could demand that that Jew carry their luggage for a mile, and they had to do it. And what is Jesus saying here? Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Go the extra mile. You heard that, that phrase has become common everywhere, business and everything else. This is where it comes from. Go the extra mile. Jesus is doing this. And so uh, this is a very political thing here. And I think we can say this for the third thing. I, I don't balk at unjust or illogical governmental um, requirements. This is one that, that is a challenge to us. You know, uh, here, we're dealing with perceived governmentally sanctioned unjust rules and regulations. Does the government have a right to tell me that I have to carry this guy's luggage for a mile? That's one of the reasons Jesus addressed that, because they did complain about it all the time. And Jesus is saying, no, 
the government set, set that up. Is it right? Uh, it's nothing wrong with it as far as, you know, biblically wrong with it. It's just a sanction that you don't like. So you know what? Instead of just carrying it one mile, you ought to carry it two. It ought to be a testimony to them. Um, you know, and, and, and i got to confess that a lot of times uh, uh, my spirit groans and complains about some of the things that the government requires us to do, especially when it comes to things that we have to do here to fit in with certain regulations. And, you know, I mean, even the things when it comes to our cars and our property and all of that kind of stuff, you know, those are government regulations that we just, you know, and I don't think Jesus is saying, you know what, they're charging you $20 for a, uh, for a state inspection, give them 40 you know. <laughs> I don't think he's saying that necessarily, but, but that's the principle behind it, right? They're charging you this much for your state taxes, double that, give it to them, you know. <laughs> I don't think he's necessarily saying that, but what he's saying is, hey, the government is there, and if it's, if it's not something that goes against the Bible, then you ought to fit in with it. You ought to do it, and you ought to go the extra mile in doing it. Um, see, what it all comes down to and what we've always talked about is that God's after our hearts. My heart needs to let go of the things that it's holding on to. It needs to, it needs to let go of my flesh, and it needs to cling in trust to God alone for everything that we deal with. Let him handle the injustices that come our way. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16, just a few pages over from where we are, and we'll be done. I think this is what it all comes down to. The whole point of what Jesus is getting across here is restraint. Do we have the right to demand that somebody repay us when we've been done unjustly? Absolutely. We have the right to do it. But should we do it? Same thing that Jesus talked about with divorce. Do we have a right to demand a divorce when somebody's been unfaithful? Absolutely, but should we? Is that the purpose of what Jesus was saying when he wrote that, or you know, what God was saying when he gave that law to Moses? Jesus is coming back and changing these things because not, it's not the, the letter of the law that matters. It's the spirit of the law. It's our heart that Jesus is after. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what it comes down to. You want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? You got to turn in your me card. It's not about me anymore. It's not about me anymore. If I become a follower of Jesus Christ, deny myself, take up my cross, follow him. Once I do that, he's my boss. He's my master. I'm his servant. And a servant defends his master. And a master will defend his servant. And that's what Jesus expects us to do. Restraint. Can we fight back? Yeah, absolutely. We have the right to. But should we? That's the question. And I think that's something that we ought to look at. We ought to consider. Let Jesus go to bat for us. Like David said, let God be my defense. I don't need to do it myself. That's what Jesus is trying to get across in this passage, and I believe that it, it applies to all of these things. It comes down to the matter of the heart. I need to deny myself. I need to take up my cross, and I need to follow him. And let the chips fall where they may. He's my boss. He's the one that's going to defend me. I don't need to defend myself. Good point. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for the fact that you are our defense. 
Thank you for the fact that you do love us and you care about us enough to go to bat for us and that vengeance is yours. You'll repay everything that happens to us. And we might not see it in this life where somebody gets repaid for something that they've done to us, but we'll be repaid when we stand before you in heaven someday. And we get the rewards for following you, for living for you. We get the commendation of well done, thou good and faithful servant. Pray that you help us to live for that instead of living for our own honor, our own glory, our own defense. Pray that you'd help us to live for yours. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Very simple message tonight and probably more of a reminder than anything. You probably are not even thinking of something in your mind when you fought back when you shouldn't have or when you, you know, tried to defend yourself when you shouldn't have. But that's something for us to consider. Where do you stand in relation to this with Jesus Christ? Is he your defense? Is he your defender? Or are you relying on yourself? Are you in your flesh? Or are you in the spirit? That's what it comes down to. As the piano plays, the invitation is open tonight. You can come.